You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange with me, Arthur Parkinson, and unusually I'm without Sarah today, but I'm with her counterpart, Adam, her husband, Adam Nicholson, writer, naturalist, and fellow king of Perch Hill. Adam, hello. Thank you for joining me this morning. Thank you for having me. It's like like you're having me over to tea. I know. I've been very lucky. I mean... Knowing Sarah, I also know Adam very well, and I laugh with Adam more than almost anyone else in the world. Well, more than with Sarah. She can be rather serious. A little bit. <laughs> yeah, you're kind of like the gin and tonic during the day quite often, before the gin and tonic's opened. I'm the gin um, and she's the tonic. Yeah, that's the way it goes. So what have you been up to today on Perchill Farm? Well, I have to say I've been reading stuff for a book I'm writing. And that's been nice. The weather's been kind of this dreadful summer, just grinding on in the awful grey way it does. And uh, I have yet to kind of go out. <laughs> I've looked at Perchill, <laughs> but I've yet to encounter it. <laughs> I will take the dogs out in a minute. Because you, your study where you write these beautiful books, you've just published your 19th book, Rock Pools. I believe it's number 19, if I've got that right. I don't know. It's not certainly not worth counting. But you look down on the the Oast Garden, which is the oldest garden, really, that that Sarah made at Perchill. And I've been rereading The Smell of Summer Grass, which is your account of living, moving to Perchill from London with Sarah. It's where you raised your children, developed the farm into the most gorgeous living thing that it now is. And uh, I remember this quote that I read when I read this book many years ago about a chicken in the garden. And so I'm just going to read it. There is a rogue chicken. It would not go back in the run, but instead, just as Sarah had finished her last sweep and survey before Andrew Lawson or Howard Suley arrived, would wander into the garden and begin to shuffle its way messily through the applied mulch. That was the pattern of the week. Chicken Lawson, chicken Suley, chicken BBC, like some monstrous club sandwich. What is it with your animals, Sarah asked. Can't you get anything organised? That's when we hit our big sheep crisis. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> what was the big sheep oh i remember the big sheep crisis big sheep crisis is when our sheep attacked the neighbor's car <laughs> <laughs> or was said to have and but it was an incredibly expensive car a lexus <laughs> and, and the sheep saw its own reflection in the door of this brand new lexus and thought well i'm not having you here bang <laughs> And dented, <laughs> dented the door of the Lexus. We denied it. We absolutely said no sheep of ours would do such a thing. And they said, well, I'm afraid you have to pay for the damage. We said, not on your life. <laughs> and then we got the <laughs> professor of animal behavior from Cambridge University to do. write an affidavit <laughs> to say that no sheep had ever been known to attack a Lexus in the history of either sheep or Lexus. <laughs> but needless to say, we lost. We lost against the insurance company and had to pay up painful god if you want to read about more sheep sagas and and well not sagas because you i mean what i love about the smell of summer grass perchill is you were learning to farm you've you were brought up in sussex 
But you'd not you'd not been a farmer before you went to Perthshire, had you? No, we arrived well, when we arrived here in 19, May the fourth, uh, nineteen ninety four. Neither Sarah nor I had the faintest idea what we were doing. And I remember when we first decided to get some sheep because the fields were just running away in absolute mayhem, sort of thistle mayhem. I got some sheep from a from a farmer down the road, and and I said to him, "Do you have you got any tips, you know, on how how to keep sheep?" <laughs> and his his answer was, "Well, try and keep the legs pointing down if you can." <laughs> and uh, on the whole, we have managed to not 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 absolutely universally, but on the whole, we have. And so it was very exciting. I remember it was exciting coming here. We'd been living in West London, and just the sheer sort of spread of space was so wonderful. I, I remember walking around that May evening and not really able to believe that we could call these fields and these woods ours. And uh, it was just a, an incredible feeling, both of release and of arrival. I mean, a sort of slightly contradictory and ambivalent set of feelings, both kind of this incredible liberty of coming here and a feeling that we were somehow getting into bed getting in under the duvet of here that it was a really lovely enclosed and safe place to be you know that the the sussex weald where we are is is very woody the farm is entirely surrounded by woods and there are woods within the farm and so nowhere feels uh, huge. It's everywhere yeah. is a kind of little uh, container of its own. The house, the garden around the house, the fields near the house, even the more distant fields. And so you get a feeling of incredible belonging here. Mm. I mean, I remember talking to the man who, who who was selling the place to us reluctantly, I think, and just the feeling of absolute grief in him really that he was he was leaving it it was terrible but i was quite keen that he should go <laughs> to be, so, yeah, that we, so that we would be here <laughs> but it was um i think it was the best thing sarah and i have ever done to come here absolute foundation of life yeah you described the gardens as a necklace you described the gardens as they were added on to the farm as a, as a necklace and i think that's such a lovely description yes well of course when we came there wasn't that much of a garden there was an absolutely beautiful flowering cherry tree outside my workroom window the first thing sarah did one morning about two or three mornings after we arrived was cut it down (laughs) (laughs) had that been discussed or did that just happen i rushed out (laughs) I rushed out and said, Sarah, 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 Sarah. And she said, no, shady, shady, there's no way we could have that. We've got to grow flowers here. And the idea of having a a cherry tree is completely impossible. But uh, no, but that was not the best of beginnings. Did you have a domestic? Uh, We had a slight domestic, but we soon got over it. I think most people have domestics over things. Like I've had a domestic with with my with my man over over something. Similar. What was it over? Um, well, I want very much to remove a very sad looking rose, which I hate seeing on a daily basis, and he he wants to nurture it and and look after it. So we have a. 
it's interesting. I think I've inherited from Sarah. That's, you know, let's clear the path and set it aside and start again. But a lot of people don't don't like doing that, do they? I am definitely a hanger on to mm. things that, that are here. There's a lovely apple tree outside the kitchen, which I, I love looking at in all its different forms through, yeah. through the year. And it would be a sad, sad day. I mean, it isn't a very it's a non-productive thing, really. And its blossom only lasts probably mm. a week. But um, I think one needs to kind of give something to the past in places like this. Yeah. I mean, I really don't think the bulldozer is the loveliest of instruments. No. And, and one needs to darn and mend mm. and fill and sort of complete. I mean, this farm before we came here had been driven very hard by farmers who were desperately trying to make a living out of dairy farming in the 70s and 80s, incredibly difficult time. And they were really pushed to make it work. And entirely understandably, but the, the result of that was that the place was quite hurt by that process that they took hedges out, they took trees down, they ploughed and reseeded with much more productive grass lays many of the fields. And so there was a kind of botanical gap, or even you could say a biological gap in the place when we arrived. I mean, it looked lovely, but at that level of birds and wildflowers, and of cover actually for for creatures mm. it was it was lacking and so yeah. what we've done over the last whatever it is 27 years i think now is mend that is exactly that is mend it and darn it and put in the hedges and manage the fields for biological diversity and mm. so they are flowery now and you go for a walk through one of them now it's uh there's this wonderful kind of fizz of grasshoppers that dances out in front of your feet like like the bubbles on a newly poured glass of champagne, just sort of fizzing out in front of you. It, and uh, incredible, incredible things. I've just written a book about a rock pool and uh, life on yes. the shore. And the sandhoppers, you know, if you lift away a bit of seaweed, the sandhoppers dance out like mm. that in what they call um, protean flight. You know, so everything dances away in, in every direction so that any predator is confused. And it's funny enough, the, the grasshoppers and the, and the sandhoppers have exactly the same body motion as, as your feet sweep through the grass or through the seaweed. Yeah, I'm looking at that photo now, and it almost looks like someone's been to Waitrose and spitted out all the, the prawny bits of the prawn you don't eat. But those those ones there are they dried under the yeah, under that yeah um, dried that. seaweed lifted away yeah the sandhoppers have been sheltering revealed in midsummer as dissected pink and dead I'm afraid very dead, <laughs> <laughs> very dead. but I didn't know I didn't know what a sandhopper was until I looked at your book I mean they look quite big no they're tiny they're about the size of if you let your thumbnail grow and just cut off the thumbnail. They're about mm. that size. They're, they're maybe about half an inch or something or, or a third of an inch, uh, but incredible little creatures. I, the book is all about kind of how amazing these tiny creatures can be, mm. that uh, they know 
They know where the sea is. They know where the top of the beach is. If you take a sand hopper from a west-facing beach and take it away to a place, you know, miles and miles away and let it go, it will still jump west towards the sea. And an east-facing uh, sand a beach sand hopper will jump east, even if it's in a in a laboratory in London mm. or whatever. And amazingly, if you breed those two sand hoppers together, one from an east-facing beach, one from a west-facing beach, their children will head either north or south. I, in other words, exactly halfway between the directions their parents would have chosen. Isn't that extraordinary? There's a kind of a genetic memory, which is kind of hybridized in children. I mean, completely uselessly, obviously. We've gone from Perchill now, I should yes, say, to Scottish rock pools in Adam's book, new book, The Sea is Not Made of Water, Life Beneath the Tides, which is, it's, I mean, it's the most wonderful thing. And, and like little gardens, when you, when you go to the coast and see the sea as retreated and you see all these little pools, it's almost like, if you get your eye in, almost like being at the Chelsea Flower Show of of little beautiful things, isn't it? And Adam yeah. has has celebrated all this gorgeous life in this in this new book. And the cover is of a gorgeous prawn, uh, the common prawn. It seems wrong to call it a common prawn, but he looks like he's got um, nightclub harnesses attached to himself, <laughs> like he's about to go into Soho. Uh, quite a hunky prawn. And your dear friend, because I can see Adam on the screen, I'm looking at Adam, and there's the most gorgeous painting of a crab. And the illustrations in this book, as were the illustrations in Seabirds, done by the wonderful Kate Boxer. How did that come about, Adam? Where did the idea for doing a book on rock pools come from? Well, Sarah's family has a place, a holiday place, which they've been going to for years and years and years, since the 1930s, on the west coast of Scotland, on this lovely bay, a big, big, tall bay with cliffs and woods and waterfalls and a lighthouse on one side and a castle on the other. Absolutely magic, magic place that I've loved going to with her uh, ever since we first knew each other. And there's only one drawback to the bay. It doesn't have any rock pools because the rocks are all kind of boulders, volcanic rock boulders. And so I've always longed to make a pool because they are like tiny sea gardens. You know, they are like you make a little or you find a little kind of a perfect place cut off from the normal run of things, which, you know, you could call the garden that in a way. Mm. And that's what these are too. And then you look in and there, you know, the great thing about a rock pool is that the things in there can't escape. <laughs> if you go and look at so it's it. It's like your own little zoo. There's a tiny <laughs> aquarium zoo. But there weren't any on this bay well, <laughs> until I decided to make some. And that's yeah. what the book is about. And so I dug dug one with pickaxes in the rocks. And then I made a little dam and dammed another one. And then I built a concrete wall. Little, it's only about, what, 18 inches, two feet high and about maybe 10 feet across. Someone said to me that it's all about bioreceptivity. It's about making a little space in which life can find a home which is incredibly garden-like but of course I don't do any gardening 
The sea does the gardening. The sea is the gardener. Yeah, I love that idea. Yeah, see, and I mean, I'm looking at these four brilliant photos, and um, there's no photos of you actually making this rock pool, but it's very sweet. I mean, it almost could be a bucket and spade, only it's the adult version of the bucket, a full-on, you know, very heavy-duty builder's spade. I mean, how on earth did you do this? You must have worked with the tides. I mean, it's quite dangerous to be out there on your own doing it. No, I, I no? don't think it was dangerous. No, it was exhausting because all yeah. the rocks and concrete and stuff is really heavy. But mm. I took, I went slowly, slowly. It's all, the book is also about being very slow. Slow like a starfish movement. Slow like a starfish or, or a yeah. limpet. Limpet, <laughs> limpet, top speed, four inches a minute. and that's my figure i i spent an entire day (laughs) trying to record the speed of limpers i'm very glad you did (laughs) well the world would be less without that fact it would it absolutely would and what also i love about this book is you you managed to get a camera in these pools and the photos it's like looking through david attenborough's life on earth again with these beautiful photos of crabs. I mean, a crab looks a very naughty creature. What What was your favourite creature to discover in the rock pool? Well, I did, I did love the crabs. I mean, the crabs are totally intriguing things. That yeah. An amazing fact is that a crab, at all stages of its life, knows what state the tide is in. They've done experiments that if you take a crab away and put it in an aquarium, it will go up and down the aquarium in time with the tides outside the window, even though it doesn't know they're happening. How does it know that? I don't know. I think one of my favourite animal of all, one late one summer afternoon with Sarah, we went out in the boat and I had a plankton net a very, very fine mesh net with a little bottle at its at its end and trawled it back and forth and then took the water and poured it into dishes and looked at it under a, a microscope. And it just looked like absolutely ordinary water to the naked eye. But look at it in a microscope and it was utterly teeming with life, just full of tiny, strange creatures. You couldn't recognize what they were. Many of them you could see even their little hearts beating inside them in the piece of the microscope. And uh, they were rushing around in this uh, dish. And, oh, Lord, this isn't going to work. And you're meant to put them in um, industrial alcohol to to kill them so you can actually see them. But I didn't have any of that. So I poured in a good slug of finished vodka, and they did indeed stop swimming stop about in the finish. Suddenly. Yeah, but yeah. then, but quite suddenly. But then I thought, oh, this isn't right. The only thing to do is actually to drink it. And so I did. I had a lovely you drank sh- them. shot of plankton vodka, which I can recommend. I think that'll be the next superfood. <laughs> Maybe we've started to try. I hope not for the sake Proteinaceous. of the plankton harvesting. <laughs> 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 you must come, Arthur. You must come to this place because I think you'd absolutely love it. You know, I think you really. I, would. I haven't been rock pooling for so long. My mum, when she was pregnant with my my younger brother Lyndon, heavily pregnant, had to run after me in on in Tembe Tembe Beach. That's a magnificent place with incredible. That sea anemones there. 
Yes. I don't remember much, but I do remember this sea of kelp and rocks and it was jelly shoe land all the way. And yes. I mean, there's something like flowers in a garden. These anemones in particular are very in, in captivating, aren't they? I mean, you you look at dahlias every summer at Perchill. A, a dahlia almost is a cousin of a sea anemone. You know, the classic Sarah Raven, Rip City. It's quite funny, isn't it, that the classic Sarah Raven dahlia is an anemone in a way. It is, it is. And anemones, I've, there's a whole great chunk of that book about anemones. And yeah, fighting. Fighting. Can you believe it? I didn't understand. I, someone from the aquarium in Marle talked to me how you can just peel sea anemones away from their rocks without it hurting them. And I, I took a whole bunch of them back to a tiny little aquarium back in the house. I mean, little thing, only only kind of one foot by two. And I thought I could just sit and watch them there being kind of dahlia-like. Suddenly, they were absolutely going at each other, hell for leather, stabbing each other with these poisonous darts and just ending up in two little groups, one at each end of the aquarium saying, I hate you, I hate you. And these are, these are animals with no eyes, no ears, no mind, no central nervous system. You know, there's nothing about them which says, I am conscious. And so how on earth do they do they know that this lot of anemones were their friends and this lot were their, their enemies, their enemy enemies? And it's a very, very deep mystery to me that, about how, how do things like that know anything? And I don't think anybody really has an answer to that. I mean, what I love about this book is it's almost like you've put a soap opera, you've you've transformed the language of a rock pole into a soap opera. It's almost like, I mean, these photos of these anemones, this could be Pat Butcher and Peggy Mitchell <laughs> having a brawl in the in the Vic. You know, they really are going for it and, you know, get out of my rock pool. Get out of my <laughs> okay. rock pool. Whose rock pool do you think this yeah. is? Anyway... <laughs> <laughs> yeah what did did you learn nothing at school <laughs> anyway we've got to get you there arthur because i think you and james would love it we would i mean have you you've obviously been going to that part of the coast for a long time has, has it changed much as as climate change affecting the rock pools or are they fairly stable well it, um Yes, I mean, the seas in Scotland are being completely trashed at the moment by uh, uh, fishermen destroying, uh, trawling the seabed in incredibly careless ways and totally unregulated. I mean, a real failure of regulation. Global warming is having a terrible effect on uh, biodiversity, but even worse in a way for the inshore animals like these it's the acidification of the sea that is most damaging. That the more uh, carbon dioxide that gets absorbed by the sea, the more acid it becomes. And of course, animals like most of these that depend on shells for their safety find it increasingly difficult to make their shells in acid seas. Oh. And so yeah. a lot of shellfish are incredibly vulnerable to predation because their shells are weakening. You know, it's not unlike the catastrophe that happened to birds in the 60s and 70s with 
DDT, mm. you know, the, that thinning of the shells in uh, peregrines and, and other birds of prey caused a total crash in their populations. And there is among the, the marine biology uh, community now a real anxiety that this is going to wreck the the whole ecosystem you know if you if you get rid of for example uh, limpets then you just get an explosion of the uh, seaweeds that they feed on uh, they utterly blanket the shore nothing else can grow in there and you end up with a, a sort of dying monoculture i mean it is really really catastrophic what's going on yeah, I, I read yesterday that there might be more jellyfish than fish in the sea quite soon. Yes, that is one theory. We're just going to end up with sort of mush. You know, the, the, the sea is going to be filled with mush, which is tiny single-cell organisms, the absolute bottom level of life. It's like going back to before any evolution had happened, right back to the simplest of all animals, if we continue to destroy things. I mean, the sea, the beauty of rock pools of coral reefs is that they are so, they trigger emotion in us, I think, as, as humans, more than possibly the open ocean does, because it is like looking into a flower bed, isn't it? A dahlia bed of character and shape. And I remember I used to go to London Zoo and I'd spend forever in the aquarium, because even in an aquarium setting, you didn't feel these animals were trapped and they made it feel like it was, you know, like a Disneyland Little Mermaid feast visually i mean i think do you think rock pools and coral reefs have the power to try and get us to do something with books like you've done with blue planet do you think there's enough of a build of of people's emotions to try and do something i do think that you know things will only happen on on the kind of big political level mm. which is where they need to happen if enough people care and people will only care if they know. You know, a lot of the damage that gets done to the sea is done because it's invisible. No one sees it. And at the shore, you can see it and you can see a lack, uh, you know, drop in diversity and so on. And so, yeah, that's definitely a plan of mind for this book in a small way that if people can see that you can make these little containers for life i would love everybody <laughs> to start making rock pools around the coast to make these little kind of cups in which you can be amazed by uh, a sea star or or a, or a sea urchin or or the incredible um, marbled whelks that you, that you get further down the shore and all kinds of wonderful things called nudibranchs you know sea slugs these brilliant so almost tropical looking things and they're all there and we don't know what we don't know you know <laughs> we don't care about what we don't know and so it's just about getting down on your hands and knees i say to everyone you know, get a pair of those heavy duty builders knee pads and they're marvelous things and just get them and you can kneel there an entire day looking at these wonder worlds beneath your nose well, we can all tuck ourselves up in bed or sit in an armchair and look at this wonder world that you've produced, which I hope isn't a time capsule of rock pools. I hope there will be rock pools long into the future full of these jewels. I'm going to go on making them until the day I die.
God, we, we need we need writers like you, and and this is a, a gem of a book. And so we've gone from sheep to sea fish and sea creatures very quickly. But um, thank you for joining me, Adam, this afternoon. It's been a real honour and a pleasure. It's lovely to talk to you, Arthur. Can we do it again? We can do it again, absolutely. I'd love to. Then if you'll have me back. Of course I will. <laughs> Well, I personally really enjoyed listening to that podcast without me in it, but with Adam, my husband, and Arthur having a good old laugh, a lot of at my expense. Anyway, next week, Arthur is with Anne-Marie Powell, the wonderful designer who has got a very, very exciting garden at Chelsea this year. And of course, with Chelsea being delayed, it's going to be in the autumn, not spring, because of COVID. But isn't that exciting? Because it means a whole new range of plants will be there for us all to enjoy, either on the TV or in the flesh. And Arthur and Anne-Marie are both going to be there and they're going to be chatting about what they're looking forward to in our next episode. You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahaven.com.